0: Welcome back to Behind the Tofu,
1: a vegan podcast that brings you Behind the Tofu,
0: exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. I'm Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done.
1: I'm Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolton Bombers.
0: You can find us at Behind the Tofu uh, on Twitter, Behind the Tofu Podcast on Instagram, and behindthetofu.com. Don't forget to rate and view us on Apple Podcasts. And today we have a guest. Seth, do you want to say who our guest is?
1: Asatar Bear is a professor of economics and statistics at the Riverside City College. And his research interests include the economics of crime and punishment, class theory, monetary economics, international trade, economic philosophy, and methodology. He's interested in the intersection between economics and self-realization as he serves as a teacher for the Institute of Applied Meditation. So I want to start things off with a quote uh, from an article that I shared with you by monthly review, just to preface everything. Neither has the Marxist left stood up for the liberation of animals so far, nor has the animal rights and animal liberation movement taken up the construction of a socialist society. We argue that Marxists and animal liberationists have the same enemy, the bourgeoisie.
0: So I guess our first question that we normally ask people, but I actually don't, we don't know the answer to this, so we're just going to ask you, are you vegan or vegetarian?
2: You know, I, I was in my youth back in the 90s, I was a vegan for about seven years. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things. I, I feel like I still keep the principle, but I don't, I don't keep that particular practice going. Um, we had like, a, my wife and I both did it. Um, we had a number of health challenges and I think just a kind of broadening uh, of values. Also, it was a different era. Of, you know, like I feel like now things are, you know, a, a lot more vegan friendly. Uh, so that's kind of a good development. I think the culture is more open to that diet, many different diets, I think, and which I think is good. You know, that's part of that's part of individual self-expression.
0: So I guess since you were vegan for seven years at some point in your life, I'm going to ask you at what at the beginning of your journey of going going vegan, how did that journey go for you and what was the realization that led you to becoming vegan?
2: Well, for me, it was, it was the book, uh, by the John Robbins book, the diet for a new America. And, um, I think there was just something that was very evocative about that. And, you know, I think at a certain, you know, is it a, a time for me where it's like a time of exploration, you know, what is the linkage between individual action and, you know, social or collective action. Um, and it just felt like a very, you know, tangible way of like doing something. And, you know, I think I just, like most people, right? had no idea like how animals are raised and what fa- what is entailed in factory farming. Um, and so that was, an, you know, that book was an eye opener for me. Um, it was difficult to make the transition. I, I think I did it uh, quickly. I, you know, for me, it just felt like an overnight thing, you know, like I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta change this. Right. Um, and, uh, I was, uh, a college athlete at the time. Uh, I was, I was running track and cross country. Um, and so that kind of, that kind of dietary practice was like, you know, the people had the most questions and kind of brought the most static were like my teammates, you know, because they were. They just, uh, they were like, well, is this gonna affect your performance, right? And um, so that was interesting. Uh, but yeah, that's, that was kind of my arc. This is back in like the early 90s.
1: While I understand that Marxism is a really deeply complex topic, could you think of your best elevator pitch on how to bring someone in who is uh, curious or new, or maybe just, maybe misinformed? I would say we still unfortunately see a lot of, you know, anti-communist and anti-Marxist propaganda from the mainstream media and politics lingering from the Red Scare era, which is why I think this is really important to start things off with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Marxism is one of these things that can be made um, very sophisticated. Uh, There's a lot of knowledge there, or it could be made very simple because, you know, the... um, The reality is that our society is structured for the benefit of a tiny minority of very rich people. Uh, And there are many, many mechanisms which take society's wealth and distribute it upward toward the very rich. Uh, And this is not that different from the era of kings and masters that we've pretty much decisively rejected on a historical level. I mean, we're believers in democracy, right? We believe that it should basically be one person, one vote. Well, how on earth can you have that if some people have command over vast amounts of socially produced resources and others, most people, right, basically have nothing, even in very rich countries. I mean, in the United States, here we are, a very wealthy society, right? the overwhelming majority of people essentially own zero wealth. Uh, now, you know, that might be sort of a surprising conclusion, right? Because you might say, well, people own their portion of their home, right? They own, they own home equity. That isn't real wealth, right? I mean, that's wealth that you are using, right? Like, so if you were to sell your house, you'd have an immediate problem of like where to live, right? It's not, that's not liquid wealth. Like if you look at liquid wealth, You know, very few people have any of it to to speak of, right? Um, And so, you know, that's the society that we live in, right? It's it's a very efficient machine for funneling social wealth into the hands of a few people. And, you know, Marxism basically says, look, that isn't right, and that's not going to lead to a good place. It's based on exploitation. If we're going to have a decent society, one that works for everyone, not just the rich, we need to change that. We need to overturn the laws, the economic practices, that, and the culture that supports this kind of economy and says that it's good.
1: Ashley, do you have any thoughts on that intro?
0: No, I think it was pretty concise. When I was a political science student in college, and um, we didn't really actually, funnily enough, being a political science student, you would think that I would have studied um, Marxism more but i don't yeah. think that i actually read any Marx at all in college uh even once that doesn't um,
2: surprise me at all
0: yeah so that was that was kind of like going into law school and starting to meet more uh, left-minded people my boyfriend currently especially whenever he started talk, talking to me about Marx, i was like i've actually never read Marx ever um and i probably should have done that on my own at some point but i didn't and he forced me to sit down and read the communist manifesto and then capital um and he forced me to read other texts by scholars later on um that talked about marx and um he was like, well, if we're going to be in a relationship, you're just going to have to learn about Marxism. So that, that was my introduction to Marxism, which I did the same thing with him to veganism. I was like, if you're going to be, a, we're going to be in a relationship, you're going to have to be vegan. So we kind of did, we swapped uh, knowledge and ideologies. And uh, that
2: yeah, was, it that sounds like you guys put each other in, in a kind of, uh, you know, re-education camp where you get each other, your ideological development. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that—that's what motivates learning, right, is having somebody important to you who, you know, says, like, you got to know this.
1: <laughs> so on that note, the next question I had in mind was sort of seeing the intersection between veganism and uh, Marxism, particularly those that are, you know, in the mainstream activism world of things. And I think it's important for these groups to consider each other because there's, you know, socioeconomic issues that impact animal liberation um, that we've talked about on this show many times. And I understand there are many often barriers which prevent the groups from coming together. And so another quote from the article that we referenced earlier was, Marxists, in turn, do not hold animal liberation activists in particularly high regard either. They are often seen as strange aesthetics and bourgeoisie moralists who invest themselves in negligible causes instead of focusing on the key issues. They are expected to take part in actions and alliances for class struggle, but to leave their animal craze at the door. Many comrades break out in a cold sweat when they ponder a society in which both humans and animals alike are liberated from exploitation and oppression, since it means giving up their meat and cheese. And Frederick Engels said, uh, made fun of the term uh, heron vegetarianer, who underestimated the importance of uh, meat consumption in the history of human civilization and who we are at best, utopian socialists. So the unfortunate reality uh, is that many animal rights activists today don't understand or target the underlying issues which fuel speciesism and animal exploitation, which is where being a Marxist would improve their perspective on societal change. How do you think we can find this common ground between the Marxist movement of today and animal liberation?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's a big question. Um, It's one of the things that kind of, I find amazing about Marxism as a whole, is that it has uh, gone into many different fields or many different areas, many different activist spaces where you wouldn't think that there was like an immediate connection, you know? Like, I mean, I, I'm, I was trained in this in academia, you know? So I kind of, I have that background, you know? But I'm like there like, there are Marxist literary theorists, for example, you know? And, but like in a larger sense, I mean, so at, at first you're like, what the hell is that? You know, like that doesn't make much sense, right? Um, but in a larger sense, capitalism affects pretty much every aspect of life, right? In one way or another. I mean, we don't wanna be reductionist about it. We don't wanna say the economic forces of life are more important or more powerful than other forces, right? I mean, we know that cultural and political and ethical, you know, all of these variables are also very important. Um, so we don't want to be like economic determinist about it, but we do want to recognize that every aspect of society is connected to every other aspect. Uh, That's a kind of just fundamental, you know, philosophical perspective from, from Marxism, right. Uh, Often called dialectics or dialectical materialism. Um, So I I think, you know, that, that article is, does a good job of saying, you know, here's some of the historical boundaries Uh, you know, I think, yeah, like animal rights issues have often been seen as, as individualistic or matters of individual choice. And, you know, Marxists are definitely like, hey, it's not about what the individual does necessarily, right? I mean, yeah, we make choices as individuals, of course, we have a kind of, you know, we like to express ourselves, like I said, right? But, but what we do collectively is a lot more important politically. Um, But I think any kind of activist does recognize that, right? Because you know, it's not just about your personal dietary choices, right? It's about, well, can we, you know, through through action, can we, you know, improve the the you know practices and you know uh, and so on, right? Uh, so, I don't I don't know if that's a real distinction or if that's just a kind of I don't know traditional, you know, barrier or whatever cultural barrier between the different groups, um, but I, I think. I think there's another kind of issue, which is that, you know, when you're focused on animals and animal rights, um, a lot of people will come and say, what about humans? You know, like humans are horribly exploited, right? Or, Or what hope do we have of recognizing they were causing suffering to, I mean, billions of sentient beings when we don't actually care that much when they're human either, right? I mean, like, what a stretch, right? Like we... We should care about you know, factory farming of chickens when you know, humans are in cages on the border, right? Um, I mean, I think maybe, maybe just a, a simple way to sum it up is to say like, no being should live in a cage, right? I mean, like that's, <laughs> it's like a, uh, and if you think that, that they should, uh, tell us why, right? I mean, like that should be, have to be defended. That, that shouldn't be like the default position in society.
0: Yeah, and and to kind of uh, kind of grow off of what you said. Um, we do hear those arguments a lot. What about the people? The biggest argument that we hear is, is specifically about farm workers, right? Um, of course, like you said, that you know the people are saying, "Well, well, we need to fix a- human issues before we fix animal issues." I think that the whole goal of collective liberation is to liberate humans and animals simultaneously, um, and that's kind of I, I believe that would be a Marxist stance on. On what we should do anyway, like you were saying a few minutes
1: ago. To build off of what you're saying, a common thing I'll see on Twitter is um, specifically, you know, we see, let's say, a video of, you know, a fruit or vegetable farmer out in the fields in terrible, you know, conditions where they have to pick, you know, whatever it may be and they get paid very little. They're, you know, they don't get fed much or they they don't get um, terrible weather, et cetera placed um, it,
0: in in government right. housing that is not sufficient and uh, is pretty much squalor. and and so people
1: right. always blame, place the blame of that on vegans for because it feels like kind of like a, a deflection or more of like just a scapegoat rather. Um, and then people are like, oh, well, you vegans, you think your your lifestyle is cruelty free, but you're eating these you know cruelty filled fruit and vegetables and then we and then we would say, okay, well, you're probably eating them too. And that, then we don't really get anywhere with that. But that's sort of like, you know, the common, you know.
0: Um, when it comes to farm workers and what we can do to help farm workers has a lot to do with decentralizing our food system, food just for the consumption that we pers- like personally would need or whether that our community needs rather than producing for uh, global systems or even like National interstate systems, right? Like we should be producing the food locally and then distributing it locally. Um, yeah. And that's that's why community supported agriculture is super important um, and things like that.
2: I feel like most vegans are, are into that. Like I think most vegans get it that our system of producing food period is quite problematic. Uh, I don't know if you guys read that. There was a, like a Michael Pollan article on this a while back. And he basically said, "Look, our 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 food distribution system, our food production and distribution system, is heavily fossil fuel based. I mean, that's just the reality of it, right? And we need to make it solar based, basically, right? Like we need to make it sustainable. Um, and you know, how would we do that, right? We have to we have to move away from like the kind of mass agriculture model, right? Like, you know, the Green Revolution was." a tremendous leap forward in terms of raising like crop yields, right? And we should recognize and appreciate that. But does that mean it's the only model? Does it mean that it's what we should use for everything, right? Probably not, right? I mean, we should probably move back toward a decentralized kind of agriculture, where we're all more involved in growing our food. And then there's less, there's less distribution that has to take place, right? There's less you know, fossil fuel powered trucking that has to, you know, transport our lettuce from, you know, far away to where we're going to consume it. Um, I feel
0: like. And that, like overall less exploitation of human capital. going. Yeah.
2: On. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I, th- I think that, that vegans are tend to be, the ones I've talked to at least tend to be pretty hip to those issues, you know, and are aware of like, you know, how food is produced. And, and see it as problematic. So I think that that's, you know, a kind of, it, it's, it's not quite correct to say that like, animal rights folks aren't concerned with the overall social and economic structures. I, I think they are, they're just, you know, there's, there's a different, maybe there's a different focus, um, but you know, there's lots of room for people to learn from each other too.
1: I think part of that issue is also when you have, let's say a handful of people that you know are ignorant or even willfully ignorant of the system, you get that people um, will then use that to amplify their message and sort of because it's easier to pick on those people. Let's say
2: there's a lot of like gotcha kind of stuff too. I mean, you know, with with both like socialist communists or you know people who are in animal rights, like oh you know you're a hypocrite because this or whatever. Oh, you wrote that on an iPhone. I mean, <laughs> you know we we have a system, the whole point is that we have a system that we cannot really choose to opt out of, you know? I mean, you know, like you can choose not to eat meat, but you can't choose not to be part of a system of, of tremendous institutional cruelty. Um, you, can't, you can't choose not to be part of it because that's the world we've created, right? I mean, so you're going to be part of that world in some fashion, but that doesn't take away from the desire to create a better world. I mean, and, and it doesn't implicate the person in any way. Right. I mean, like have, taking a principled stand uh, is an invitation for somebody to examine your principles and see if they're consistent, but you know, like you can, consistency is kind of like in the mind of the beholder, you know, like you can, and, and deacons are often, I mean, I heard tons of this stuff uh, back in the day, like, you know, it's a, well, you know, oh, you, you know, you, you wear leather or, oh, that was, you know, that was made in China in a sweatshop or something. I mean, like, you know, it just, it, it just is a kind of dead end for, uh, for analysis, because it's not about whether an individual is consistent or not. I mean, we all have inconsistencies, let's admit that, right? Um, the question is, where are we going together? You know, I mean, what are we, what kind of world do we envision? And, and how are we, How are we advancing toward that?
0: Yeah. So for an example of what you're saying, like we can't really remove ourselves from these systems without at least exerting a certain amount of of having a certain amount of wealth as well on top of that. But like for an example for our listeners, like say you are a vegan, you have removed animal cruelty from you, from your plate, from your lifestyle altogether. Um, At that point, you then start to think about, okay, human harms. What kind of human harms am I, am I, um, you know, complicit to. So that would be like, okay, first with your food. Okay. Then I need to start buying or growing my own food. So buying food from um, local farmers and growing my own food. Well, you get to that point and you're like, okay, uh, what else, what other kinds of systems of exploitation I am? Like you said with clothes. Okay. Well then I'm going to start buying, you know, from sustainable cruelty-free brands that have high labor standards or thrifting all your clothes or thrifting all your clothes. Yeah. Those options. Okay. You do that. That's fine. What about your utilities that are made from petroleum? Uh, what about, uh, I'm trying to think there's uh, so many other things that we all contribute to on a daily basis that if you get to the point where like removing every single thing that exploits other human beings or animals from your life at that point, you have nothing left because that is the system we live in. Um, and so, there's not really a way to remove all harm, but being vegan um, and also like contribute, and also buying from other t- types of systems, and and trying to support other people, right? Um, that are part of your same class, I guess. It in that ex- to that extent, you can make changes that then you know are trying to make the world a better place. So you can't remove all cruelty, but you can make things better, like you were saying.
2: What do you guys think of that phrase that sometimes? comes up in, in Marxism that said, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism.
1: So we hear oh that all gosh. the time, because yeah. like anyone will mention veganism in some form, and then the quick response is, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Um, and it, it's and like you were saying earlier, it's one of those common forms of a gotcha, because it does, it's not even a principled uh, response, I would say. Because, I mean, my personal opinion on it is, okay, I agree, there is no ethical consumption in capitalism, but it is our duty to consume the most ethical that we can, you know, to try and achieve whatever ethical consumption is possible. And while still making, you know, striving to make changes in the system to a world where we can all consume ethically. Because it, when someone says that, it comes across to me as sort of like, well, you know, I can't be perfect in my consumption. So therefore I'm not going to try and be better unless they explicitly say, Oh, I'm trying to be better. But most of the time it's not, it's the case of, Oh, I just, I just want to give up.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So my perspective is slightly different from, from Seth's because I am a law student. And so I, um, last semester we talked about this in the podcast last semester as well, but last semester I was studying, um, I was studying business forms and I'm, I in general, I study business law, um, animal law and agricultural law. So that's kind of my focus in law school. And, uh, one of the things that I learned about last semester that I'd never heard of before is social enterprise forms, um, and social enterprise forms are companies that their entire goal is not to make money for, sorry, make money for their shareholders. So it's not about shareholder wealth maximization, but rather it's about contributing to a social cause. Examples of this are like rainforest chocolate or, um, Bomba socks, um, you know, all of those types of things.
2: The B Corporation.
0: Uh, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. we're talking about, yeah, benefit corporations, we're talking about um, benefit LLCs, basically all types of social enterprises. Um, and while I think that that is um, a good step forward, I don't think that that necessarily is ethical consumption either because they don't necessarily uh, ask the share, the stakeholders, the stakeholders, the people who are benefiting from the corporation themselves, they don't necessarily ask them what they need or what they're, what, You know what kind of um what kind of development they want they just kind of give it to them um a good example of that would be uh tom's shoes which i'm sure you know like tom's shoes when it got big everybody was buying a lot of tom's shoes and everybody thought, okay, well, I am, I am doing this awesome thing where I am not contributing to shareholder wealth maximization. I'm actually like, you know, donating money to, I'm actually getting shoes to people in um, developing countries. And then you find out a couple of years later that those shoes, the very shoes that were being imported, actually crashed, like the shoe economy in all the places where they had donated them, and people were no longer buying shoes locally, because they. Could get them for free. So um, when we're talking about, you know, how we can kind of change the idea that there's no ethical consumption or capitalism, when we decide to do things like create social um, social corporations or any sort of social benefit um, organization in general, we need to be asking the stakeholder what they want and what kind of development they need in order to move forward and uh, kind of escape the system that we've created.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I think you guys are are correct to say that that's kind of an excuse to or that, you know, because we search for these things. I mean, if you if you take a principled stance, it has a kind of built in difficulty, which is that then now you're obligated to do something for your principles. Right. And then it's a question of, well, what do you do? And is it effective? And, you know, it, it does it does it match like what you're willing to sacrifice you know i mean all those issues are like you know i mean i think everybody has to deal with them in in some fashion and but it changes too when when then you work with others you know because we all we have an influence on each other
0: marx himself has been critiqued as being speciesist for example Uh, In the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844, Marx claims that essential to the notion of humanity is the idea that humans may be distinguished from other living beings insofar as they have capacity once they are mature to transform nature in free, creatively transformative ways that allow them to realize themselves as members of a universal whole, a Mm -hmm. species, both practically and theoretically. Whereas the animal produces only under the domination sorry, the dominion of immediate physical need, man produces even when he is free from physical need and only truly produces in freedom therefrom. Um, As such, we could say that while animals are in a rudimentary general sense productive, for they certainly use the materials of nature to satisfy their ends, truly human life is creatively productive. However, many Marxist scholars suggests that animals and humans have in common sorry what what animals and humans have in common is that they are both regarded as commodities the means to produce capital because the because the labor power that produces our commodities whether human or animal labor gets transformed into the abstraction of exchange value it robs commodities of their qualitative distinctiveness both human and animals create products, and while humans may be able to create intellectual products, unlike animals, animals are subjected to similar, if not worse, exploitation under capitalism. While some products created by humans, occurring in the private sphere, are owned solely by the individual who created them, and animals' products, to the extent that it is owned by a human being, are ne- or sorry that they are owned by a human being, are never owned by the animal and can never be selectively alienated from the animal with consent. They are separated from each other from their offspring and from the fruits of their labor at all times at the whim of their owner. Since scholars seem to disagree do you believe Marxist systems and conversations should include interests of non-human animals and do you believe that animals are really that distinct from humans as Marx suggests?
2: Well so you know the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 are first of all the early Marx you know this is um I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Marx has had a lot of promise as a young person, but I mean, you know, he was a quite a young person in 1844, um, and his his work changed and developed quite a bit, especially after the revolutions of 1848, you know, basically failed, more or less, right, it failed to produce socialism, let's say, um, and... You know they produced some some bourgeois liberal re- revolutions, which was good, uh, but uh, they didn't they didn't go all the way. Um, and then Marx spent some two decades uh, studying economics, and I, I think he, he you know his his work changed somewhat, although maybe not on that issue. I, I think in terms of like the boundary between like humans and animals, I think our ideas about that are very different than they were in the eighteen forties or the eighteen sixties or whatever, I think um, I think we're seeing that a lot of the behavior that we thought of as exclusively human isn't um, that it's it's more of a gradation than it is a kind of hard line like like that describes. And I don't think Marx is unusual either for writing in the eighteen forties. I think he's expressing stuff that's pretty much mainstream type of stuff, um, that remains mainstream uh, up until I think relatively recently, like the last few decades, I feel like scientists have looked into this more. And a lot of those, those distinctions just, I think don't hold anymore. Uh, even around issues like communication, um, you know, we see like more advanced communication than we thought, even in an animal, like a seagull, you know, Um, so I just, think, I think that's interesting. I think the more that we look into the, cause you know, the, the, what you guys are talking about speciesism and that, that rigid demand that we say, oh yes, the human is so different, right? The human is, is sweet, generous. I mean, that is, that's problematic anyway, right? Cause that's not really how life is, you know? I mean, you know, from a dialectical perspective, we're going to see it differently, right? We're going to see that there's a lot of contradictions at play here and there's a lot more, uh, dynamic movement. Uh, we might be just sort of not seeing that because we are imposing that view. And I think as that falls away, we're starting to change that. The thing that that quote really reminds me of is the places that Marx talks about slavery and talks about the slave as, as a piece of capital, right? From the perspective of the owner, the slave isn't much different from a capital input, you know? you buy the slave, the slave has a cost, right? It has a maintenance kind of requirement, right? You have to feed and clothe and give the slave their basic needs, right? So Mark says, from from a perspective of slavery, labor appears to be free, but it's not. You guys know what I mean by that? Free in the sense of like cost-free to the the owner. Um, It's not free because you still have, you know, the person still has needs. And if you don't, give them food, clothing, shelter, et cetera, then they'll die, right? Which would be highly economical, uneconomical, because that's, you know, they cost money, right? They're an asset. So you have an incentive then to to care for them at at least on a basic level. And all that's true for animals as well, right? Animals are, you know, viewed as a kind of means of production or capital expense. You know, they have an ongoing expense attached to them, right, which is the same thing, right? You have to feed and care for them, otherwise they perish, um, so I, I think that's not all that different. And, you know, Marxists have always been very much against slavery, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the kind of, and I think this is where the mass culture meets Marxism, right? Because the mass culture is also against slavery, right? I mean, like, you talk to people and say, like, hey, is slavery cool under these conditions? They'll be like, no. What if it's really profitable? No, still not, not, not morally acceptable. Right. So,
0: yeah, but that's not how necessarily people felt in 1844 either, when he was talking no. about the difference between humans and animals.
2: Oh, and absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, so in 1840, the 1840s, Congress, 1840s, so. actually people were very much in the debate over whether human slavery was morally acceptable or not. Right. I mean, that's the, you know, the pro-slavery apologist versus the abolitionists. I mean, this was a debate that took place for hundreds of years, actually. Um, But the abolitionists eventually won, you know, and I think that we have a widespread cultural understanding, uh, you know, across many different cultures, even that slavery is just a brutality of the past and that we should not permit it. Um, And that's good. That's a moral awakening in humanity. Um, We haven't really come to that understanding about wage labor or wage slavery, as Marx called it. And we certainly aren't there when it comes to the treatment of animals. But I think that, you know, looking at some of those parallels can be useful as a thought experiment and as a, as a way of, you know, getting into the, I mean, what we want is a kind of combination between economic analysis, but also you want it to have that morality, right? I mean, that's a key element of it because we are trying to make the world better, right? And that's a values judgment, right? So we have to be explicit about what are the values.
1: One um, thing I wanna add
0: oh, oh, about, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to make a comment for our audience that a lot of, uh, some of the, some of the conversations about about veganism and the way, the way and the phrases and the terms that we use in our vegan activism have been challenged recently specifically um, by white vegans. And since Seth and I are both white vegans, I do wanna make the comment that um, none of this conversation in regards to slavery is meant in any way to be disrespectful Um, Seth, do you have anything else to say? I mean,
1: yes, that's a good point to, to make, um, you know, I I think the main issue when it comes to the topic of slavery, when it comes to, you know, animal activism is it's more specific that people will specifically compare it to, you know, um, the enslavement of black people in, in that, you know, it dehumanizes them in, in, just the way that approach comes across. But when you look at it from this principled perspective of just how things are at their core value, I think that does explain it better. And it's sort of, it should be a lot less offensive um, because you're sort of just looking at the function of the term slavery rather than, you know, scapegoating the group.
0: Yeah. And also when it comes to, if we're talking about global standards for treatment, um, there's something that my my international law professor is constantly, constantly bringing up. And that is that, um, it's pretty much an understood, um, you know, principle of, of international law that torture, right. Is wrong. Um, and that any sort of torture or discomfort is wrong. And if that is already the international standard for human treatment, that all torture, all sorts of confinement are wrong. Um, then the question is when will that develop to prisons being wrong? When will that develop to animal husbandry being wrong? Um, because to a certain degree, being imprisoned for even crimes against other people, um, the way that we do it in this country is is torture. Um, putting people on death row to a certain degree is torture because it's mental and physical and emotional torture, right? And then it, also if we're talking about the way that we treat animals, putting them in cages, um, you know, falsely, sorry, uh, artificially inseminating them, stealing away their children, emotionally scarring them, all the things that we do to animals, those things are to my, in my, in my perspective, from my perspective, torture. So if we're not going to talk about slavery, we could also just talk about torture as, as an international standard, because they're both things that people as a whole understand are morally wrong.
2: Yeah. I think it's interesting when, when, anim, when the life of animals is portrayed, um, it just, it, it, it couldn't possibly be further from the truth, you know, like, it, I mean, it's not always the case that animals are portrayed, right? Like if milk is being sold, you're not necessarily going to see cows in it, right? But to the extent that you do see cows, the cows are living the dream. I mean, they're in these... Beautiful green fields and rolling. Yeah, there's not a, a fence in sight ever. Right. I mean, the the cows are living in what I would call a communist utopia. I mean, and isn't that funny because it, their life's the opposite of that, right? I mean, the, the but and yet we need to insist that they're so happy and so free and so liberated. I mean, and of course we do kind of a similar thing uh, with with workers. I mean, to the extent that work ever appears which it doesn't always same thing. Right. But if, if workers are going to be depicted, they're going to be very happy about what they're doing. Right. There's not going to be class. They're going to be fulfilled. Oh my God.
1: I have a great example of, of that sort of, you know, misconstruing of workers. So currently uh, you know, this, this will come out, I think a few weeks or so after Um, what's been going on regarding Amazon, but the problem still exists. Anyways, so there's a lot of debate, and not really debate, but more so controversy over what's happening in um, Amazon workplaces, and there's currently a union vote going on to unionize the Bessemer plant, and so there was leaked documents showing that they have told uh, certain people to create fake social media accounts. To then say, oh, these conditions are great. We're not pissing in bottles. We're not shitting on the floor. We're not doing this and that. And it's the exact same parallel that I'm seeing when you're talking about with the cows in happy fields from like, they're straight up lying to your face. Well, there's, there's millions and millions of of examples of not millions, but there's The the
0: big example that you can look into is fair life. If you want to see the dichotomy between how animals are treated and how they actually like how they're depicted because fair life was depicted as being this happy place and then you see the videos of how they're actually being treated and they're literally throwing calves over fences and harming their bodies
1: and when it comes to amazon you know people on twitter have been putting out example after example of human rights violations and labor violations that Amazon has been doing. And then when these people create these accounts to say, oh, this isn't happening, obviously we come on and say, that's not happening. And that's basically what vegans are doing as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the system really is forced into a position of lying because you can't really tell the truth about capitalism, right, I mean, you can't really say, look, Hey, there's going to be ten people that basically own as much wealth as you know the the three billion people or whatever on Earth, right? Or the bottom three billion. Um, you can't say that, you know, because it sounds bad. It is bad, right? I mean, and you can't say, look, millions of people are just going to straight up starve to death because they can't afford food. I mean, can you imagine if if capitalist ideology was that honest? People would go, my God, I didn't realize the system was so brutal. I mean, we should abolish it, right? I mean, we should. We have a global food surplus. How on earth did nine million people starve to death globally? What the hell is this? I, you, you know, we don't know about it. Is the thing right? And in the, in the industrialized core, we don't know that. Um, and yet, people are still hungry. I mean, you know, there's a difference between hunger and starvation, right? Starvation is you perish from hunger. But if we look at hunger, the start the statistics are even crazier. I mean, there's like a billion people hungry at any given time. A billion. That's a huge number, right? I mean, it's mind-boggling. And many of them are in the United States, right? The United States has food insecurity. So, I mean, this is an incredibly brutal system. And, you know, if you want to get into animals and how animals are treated, it's like, well, it's even more brutal, right? I mean, like, you know, uh, torture, confinement, et cetera, that's widespread. Those are just industry standards, basically, right? Uh, Chickens have their beaks cut off just for the convenience of, you know, so that they don't, you know... Peck other chickens, right? Which they they might do. I mean, what a structural brutality that is, right? Like, why is that, right? Just it's just to, to just to lower costs, and so it's like we have a very casual attitude towards suffering there, you know, that we will if it saves a penny, okay, massive suffering, we we will absolutely institute it, um, and. You know, that's a. I think again, if people understood how widespread that was, um, b- there'd be a more pressure to change it. So that's the thus the need for the lying.
0: I mean, uh, what we were saying a few minutes ago with the way the the way that the working class is depicted and how people are in general like led to believe that led to believe that everything is like fine, right? Um, I'm thinking back to high school, right? Whenever we were talking about our futures and what we need what we need to do I guess to to be productive members of society and I went to a a school that did do a lot of trade that you know taught trades and got people certificates for trades before they graduated and also were like okay if you want to go to college you can go to college but whatever so a trade-centered high school Um, but what they basically in what they basically would say to us is that like, you can do a trade, you can go to college, but if you don't do anything, it's essentially your fault because you didn't try hard enough. Um, And that is, that is basically like the tenet of uh, at least American capitalism is that if you don't do, if you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you can't get above the station in life you were born in, then you yourself failed. It's not a failure of the system. And so like, I think that this individual blame is also like a the big term, I guess the big not term, it's like the philosophy they use to to control us and to get us to think that, you know, this is okay. Or do, yeah. that dealing with this okay. Yeah,
1: exactly. I think the other big issue that I see regarding this is hustle culture. And people will say, all right, you know, I worked 80 hours this week or I worked 70 hours this week. How much are you doing? And this and that, and like, they're so... You know prideful of being exploited so much and they're so prideful of spending so much of their time working for someone that doesn't really value their life or you know is extracting their wealth and you know i, I see like occasionally people on like tiktok or like oh well, i worked you know you know this many this many hours this week and look and look at how much i got and it's not that much and it's definitely not you know the full value of their labor and then yeah it, it sucks because people are sort of indoctrinated this, this idea that will If you work more, you can automatically, you know, change your life. I mean, yeah, you can change it a little bit, but fundamentally, unless you're really born into a lot of wealth, you don't have a lot of room to, you know, change your entire class.
2: Yeah. I mean, you can certainly earn more, but you're correct. It doesn't really change your class, right? I mean, like how much liquid wealth would you need in order to earn an income from it? such that it would be a decent income if you didn't have any other source of income. Right. I mean, like what's a, what's a fair return on money, right? Maybe 5% if you're lucky. Right. So like, and what's a good income $50,000 a year, let's say. Right. Um, So, you know, you'd need like a million dollars in liquid assets to produce a $50,000 a year income. And that's a stretch, right? I mean, like saving up a million dollars. I mean, you know, it can happen, right? It could, it, but it's a, a lot, right? I mean, you're going to have to hustle your ass off for, for a long time there. Um, and you're going to have to save. And, you know, this is, um, I think this is the ideology of capitalism, right? Capitalism says, oh, anybody can do it, right? And then overlooks the fact that, yeah, you know, but you guys won't right? Because I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? Not everyone can be above average, right? Like working that crazy amount, it, it has to be supported by somebody, right? You can't just work 80 hours a week alone. You're going to burn out. I mean, maybe you can when you're young, right? Um, you guys can, but you know, there's, you have a limited number of weeks you can do that. Um, maybe you have more of them. If you have a partner at home, who's like, I'm going to do everything for you, but How much like time do you have to just rest or just be a human being or just do your laundry or whatever, right? All these things. Um, And if you're not doing those things, your life is going to cost more, right? I mean, if you're not cooking at home, what are you you buying all your meals? I mean, that's, that's going to cut into your savings, right? So the idea that we can hustle our way out of this, maybe a few can, you know, but that doesn't, you know. It's like, it's, it's like saying, hey, we need to cross this river, but only 90% of us are going to get across it and 10% unfortunately are going to drown along the way. I mean, like if, if we were honest and said, that's our system, it'd be like, no, that's too horrible. We cannot allow that to be our system. I mean, could we not make, make it so that everybody could cross? Yeah, we could, but that would cost too much money. So we won't. Like, no, that's horrible. I mean, you, you are specifically dooming people to die. You know and then and then pointing the finger and saying human rights i mean that it just doesn't connect you know
0: yeah that that reminds me of uh um i think it's called Omalas. uh there's the story right about i don't know if you guys ever read those who leave Omalas or those use what i'm talking about anyway so it's a story about like this this society um and they essentially like they party every day they have festivals every day everybody lives without hunger right? It's just a basic utopia thing. Everybody's happy. But then there's this one child who is imprisoned that people walk past every day. They can see them through the window, right? Suffering and squalor who's never left, never seen sunlight, never left the room, Um, you know, lives in its own own feces. And the people who leave are those who recognize that that one child shouldn't have to suffer for the rest of society to uh, be happy. Um, And that is kind of, that's just something that reminded me of that is something that they made us read very early on in, in uh, college.
2: Huh. One thing I was also reminded of, oh, sorry. No, I just said I never read that one.
1: One thing that what you said also reminded me of was, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I recall that the 40-hour work week was also, was specifically tied to having, you know, a partner or rather at them, really just a wife at home doing all the work. And so, we haven't really evolved past that. And like, if that was, and and now, you know, couples are still working, you know, their asses off to put food on the table. And if the 40 hour work week was designed for that, shouldn't that change?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think what happened historically is Western societies started to change their norms around that. Uh, We had a massive influx of women into the workforce, right? That, that statistic, which is the the labor force participation rate, right? This went up dramatically in the United States from the 1950s to the 1990s, all the way up to about the year 2000. Um, And, you know, that's the main reason why it went up, right? Is because they're changing social norms around women working. But then capitalism sort of took advantage of those changing norms. And we entered a period of wage stagnation that started in the late 1970s. And so like, okay, wages are stagnating or even falling in some cases. And then people are picking up the slack by having more members of the household working. And then it's like, well, households aren't really ahead here. They are just compensating for the deterioration in their income, right? So capitalism is really capturing the gain of having more more people per household work. And we're not seeing, and that the gains just going into a few people's pockets, right? What should be happening as productivity increases is that we should all work a little bit less hard, right? I mean, like as automation increases and whatever, automation is a good thing under socialism. It's a bad thing under capitalism because it means some of y'all will lose your jobs um, and then not have an income, right?
1: So let's tie things back to food again for our last question. And so, as we've discussed, On this episode and many other times, the current capitalist food system is just failing for people, animals, and even the planet. And America doesn't even consider food a human right, for goodness sake. And back in 2005, the US voted no on a UN action to consider it a human right. And they had some silly defense of it, which it's kind of hard to defend a position like that, I would say. But that being said, even countries that do see as a human right, you know, it's still a commodity in those countries to some degree because it has a huge role in the global economy, which is unfortunate, you know, as we discussed earlier about how we should have more hyperlocal food systems, which I totally agree with. And so, you know, how would expanding, you know, the movement for socialism alleviate or even solve the overall food crisis, you know, um, and could you uh, talk of any examples where socialism has proven this worth in its regard?
2: Yeah, um, I think that one of the issues with having, um, well, with capitalist agriculture is that, you know, you have the like the sale of like what is pretty much a basic commodity, right? Like agricultural, especially if we're talking about produce or like, you know, dairy or meat or things like this, right? Um you know, these are things that don't have a huge amount of value added, right? Like, so in that sense, it's not that different from something like lumber, you know? Um, so the, the issue with that is that, you know, global commodity prices, especially for basic commodities are pretty volatile, you know? And farmers have known this for a long time, right? Because ever, ever since there have been cash crops, there's been deviations or volatility in prices, and those can have a huge impact on farmers' standard of living, right? Um, so, you know, that one issue with just producing for the market, right, that's, and that's an issue of capitalism because capitalism has the anarchy of production, right? Nobody is in charge of it. Everyone produces according to decentralized price signals. Um, so if we envision what might socialism do, well, socialism would, would bring some rational planning into this, right, and say, you know, this is the plan that we have. And the plan should be human-centered. It should, it should take into account human needs. Uh, and by saying that, I I don't mean you know that that we're not taking other needs into into consideration. I just mean that it's it's not profit-centered, right? It's centered on the good of society. And then you know, we would take into account, well, what about what's going on with the environment, right? And you know, along with that, right, what is going on with animals, we don't want to we don't want to destroy the natural world, right? We don't want to destroy our ability to actually produce in the future, which is, I mean, that's what capitalism does, right? Capitalism outsources all of these costs; it externalizes, uh, you know, any cost that it can, um, and you know, that's that makes it horribly destructive. So, we we need to reorganize food production, not just not just on the on the demand side, as you say, like. To recognize that, you know, everyone has a basic right to food, and we we should not allow people to starve. I mean, a decent society just doesn't allow that. Um, and when I'm saying society, I'm 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 thinking a little bit into the future. Like, could we recognize that as a global level instead of a nation state construct that is exclusionary, like we've like we have thus far? Um, so, you know, when I look at the history of of socialism. I have to say socialism often been concerned about this and have looked at agriculture and seen it as a building block. They don't often have the kind of consciousness around animals uh, that, that you guys are pointing out. So I think that's, you know, that's an area of development, but in terms of trying to create a plan and trying to restructure agriculture so that it can actually be a lot more productive because one of the great problems with agriculture historically is that it has all of these different barriers and obstacles institutionally. Some of them have to do with with property ownership that prevent a good amount of investment from entering agriculture and uh, and then hold back its productivity hugely and also create the conditions for famine. Uh, Because when you have small farmers who are basically, because they have to pay enormously high rents and sometimes taxes and sometimes interest, they are always on the edge of starvation, and then any bad harvest uh, pushes them over the edge, and you get you know you get a, a horribly destructive famine, and you know this has been a problem for a long time. So socialist countries were like, we need to you know we need to restructure agriculture so that we don't have this horrible recurrent problem of famine, um, and that it's more rational, you know. Um, now, I think we could do a lot better than what's been done in the past, though I do celebrate the accomplishments of, of uh, past socialisms. Um, you know, I, we can't we can't ever stop, right? We don't want to say, okay, that's the ideal form or whatever. We want to say, I mean, capitalism doesn't do that either, right? Capitalism is always advancing, right? So socialism must do the same, right? Socialism has to be progressive. We can't be like, oh, let's look back into some romanticized past. We have to say the future is ours if we create it, right? And here's the direction that you know that we should go in, right? And then let's get together collectively and hammer that out, right? Because no one person is going to have a good view of it, right? It's something that we have to do together.
0: I think that that was really awesome and, and concise. And I think that that really nailed home everything that we've been saying in this episode. So... I appreciate that. Um, sure. I think that's a, That was our last question. So my question for you now is, is there anything that you would like to share with our audience or that, I guess wisdom you'd like to impart on them, one or two things you'd like to promote?
2: Uh, well, I, I do have my own uh, YouTube channel. I put out lectures on political economy. People wanna check that out. Um, I also teach meditation. I have a weekly live stream class. You know. I, it's important to develop oneself and not not uh, not just focus on society. Uh, so that's another interest of mine. Um, and you know, I'm also active on Twitter. I write different threads on political economy and, and meditation and things like that. So if people want to follow me, uh, you know, my you can find me under my my handle is the same as my name.
0: And we will share uh, his name and everything in the description of this podcast, as well as in on any 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 of the posts that we share on him. Um, Well, I think that's all. Uh, This has been Behind the Tofu. Thank you for listening.